Hello, Jim Jam, Flim Flam on the Shim Sham, and other racist gibberish. This is Baron Vaughn, and welcome back to Deep Shit. Um, it's good to talk to you today. Um, and I say today because I mean, I mean that in uh, a sense where I have no idea when it is that you will be listening to it. But all I know is that at the point that you're listening to it, it will be today. It might be tomorrow, but there's always a point where tomorrow is today, which sounds like it sounds like the worst guru ever who just says obvious things. But really, when it comes down to it, aren't the most profound things the most obvious a lot of the times? Think of every moment where you felt, I don't know, at peace or good with yourself or had a moment of clarity. It's just because you concentrated on something really simple and suddenly you're like, oh, my God, that's a tree. And then you just felt better that entire day. Personally, I've never felt better for any entire day. Or I also don't know what a tree looks like, so that's just me. No, not really. Um, it's good to, um, I don't know, be doing this again and uh, having people listen. And I'm, 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 I'm happy that you guys decided to uh, get on the uh, sled through my brain slopes. <laughs> Oh, that's that's come on, get on a sled through my brain slopes. Welcome to Wonderland. Except I wouldn't call it Wonderland. It would be like my brain is basically an amusement park where most of the rides are broken, and you ride at your own risk. And basically, all of the rides are still there because they're riding the rides themselves are riding on their old reputation. Like man, a hundred years ago, this roller coaster was the shiz. I can clearly see those pieces of wood are falling off of it, but come on, let's do it for reality's sake. Um, anyway, today is uh, going to be a discussion about jokes with Ms. That's M I Z Lisa Beth Johnson, um, also known as Lady Bird J on the Twitter sphere. Um, and if you are a person who has listened to this podcast before, you know that she is one of my regulars, as uh, was Zach the week before. Um, yes, so we're going to talk about jokes, and it's interesting because Lisa and I became friends because I found her entertaining on Twitter. And I had heard about her, I think maybe through Eliza Skinner. It was like, hey, have you heard of this girl, uh, Lisa Beth Johnson. I was like, no, I haven't. And I looked her up, and uh, then we started interacting, and she's a very good joke writer. And, of course, I assumed she was also a stand-up comedian because who else would have those skills? But she is not a stand-up comedian. But because of that and because of her, if you will, lack of live performance, her jokes have mm, maybe a, a bit of a purity about them because everything that she has written is meant to be read. And in my opinion, something that's meant to be read is very different than something that's me meant to be spoken. Okay, If I can nerd out in Shakespeare for five seconds, it's meant to be spoken. And when we learn it in schools as an English paper, that is absolutely incorrect. <laughs> okay, that was a tangent. Won't you co-sign? So Lisa Beth and I are going to talk about jokes, and she's going to come from the perspective of a person who is looking at it mathematically. I'm assuming She's going to come from that perspective because she is a good joke writer, as I have said. So she knows instinctually these certain things about how a joke should go that we'll find out how aware she is or isn't of those. Whereas I have plied a trade and performed my comedy bits and jokes and jibes and schisms and schasms for people around this country to smatterings of mediocre applause. Just... Every show ends with a sort of ovation. You know how some people get a standing ovation? I get that, except the people who are standing are actually trying to leave really early in the midst of people clapping. I mean, I don't mean to brag, but things are going really well. Anyway, guys, here's Lisa Beth. <laughs> I grew up on a farm first five years. And then everything around it got turned into condos? And then we moved closer to the school. 
Why? Because you couldn't drive the tractor there anymore? Well, because we had a VW Bug that always broke down. Mm. And plus, my parents thought it would be a better idea uh, as we got older if we all had our own bedroom as opposed to all being in one bedroom Um, out in the country. You mean you shared a room with your parents? Uh, With my brothers, both of them. Okay, so the three children had their own room. Yeah, there were two rooms in Mm -hmm. this house in the country, one acre farm. How old were you all? Uh, We're all two years apart, and I'm the youngest, so you do the math. Well, at the time you were, what, eight? No, no, no. I was six and under. From oh, okay. the time I was born till I was about six. So six, eight, and ten. Was about the time when we moved. Well, I mean, that's the ages, respectively. Right. Six, eight, and ten. Yeah, yeah. You were six. They were eight and ten. When we moved into... Right. Yeah. But I'm just saying that that's a work, those are workable ages for children to share a room. Those are three ages that are... Those are three ages. Yeah. But I'm saying if children are going to share... If three children are going to share a room... They better be under six. They better be 10, ten and eight, under. Yeah, yeah. After that, once the hormones start, yeah, then people are going to be terrorized. And yeah. Although I slept with my middle brother uh, off and on. <laughs> don't cut that right there. Please don't cut that right there. <laughs> oh, I'm leaving all that in. It's solid gold. <laughs> you slept with your little brother off and on. Middle brother. Middle brother. Older. You shared a bed. Yeah. After we moved and we had our own beds, you know, sometimes mom would read us stories and we'd fall asleep. So. Well, I can, I can totally, I can up that. I can up the stakes of that. You actually slept with your sister? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's really the only thing that's going to one-up me. I shared a room with my grandmother. Oh, yeah, that's right. From We talked about this. We have talked about that, yeah. We've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh-huh. I had a bunk bed with my grandma. Everyone came over. Nobody did. <laughs> Ever. It was a freaky place. It was a freak, freaky McDeaky. Um, but anyway, so you were there. You were in Texas. Mm-hmm. Moved closer to the school. Right. Where you started to learn reading, writing. And arithmetic. Right. And somewhere in there, you started being funny in a sort of a way. Mm-hmm. If you're a funny person. Okay. Am I, every funny person has an origin story. Okay. Some are, I was, st- I was bitten by a radioactive comedian. Well, mine <laughs> is that I was in a concentration camp and oh. they were experimenting on me and they somehow managed to make me. Is this a first cl- able to move? Is this the X Men first class thing with my oh, reference? Darn it! Is that You've a- seen that movie, That's, but uh, they, I usually try to co-opt that. He was he was already a mutant before he was at the concentration camp. <coughs> they didn't make was him he? a mutant. Was he? Yes, he was. All right, fine. They were just trying to tap into that, and Kevin Bacon was like, "Anger." You taught the- him how. To rein it in. Oh, the, that, you're, that's right. Because when he was separated from his parents, he made, made the gates. When he shot his up. mom, then he was like, metal. <laughs> Which oh, it. yeah. I shot it. God, I don't remember anything. I don't even know why I brought that up. Yeah, I don't either. If you're going to make a reference, know what the crapple daps it's from. That's true. Anyways, so my origin story. Yeah, what do you think is your origin story? As Where, where, where do you think your sense of humor, as dry as it is, because you have a very dry sense of humor. I will say that from the outside looking in. Okay. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with it? You're looking around the room like, I wouldn't describe it that way. Well, yes and no. Okay. Let me hear your origin story. Then I want you here to hear you describe what you think is your sense of humor. Uh, well, uh... <laughs> yeah, I just threw my hands up in the He's air He's doing like, Michael Jackson bad right now. Gotcha. Head wiggle. Head wiggle. Gotcha politics. Um, my origin story is that I was the youngest girl in a family of boys and I never got a word in edgewise and I observed them trying to one-up each other constantly. Mm. And my parents, almost every day, perhaps every other day, were playing Monty Python movies. So between the two of those things, uh, that's... So trying to get a word in. Yeah. But you're also kind of a... (laughs) This is going to sound insulting. Okay, cool. That's a good setup. It's going to sound insulting, but it's totes Is it going to be more insulting than what happened downstairs? Totes. Okay. No, not really. Um, For people in the uh, podcast that are listening, what happened downstairs, we're at the AST Studios, and uh, as Lisa, Beth, and I were going up the stairs into the studio, there was a homeless dude, black dude, with some dreadlocks, um, a couple of teeth, and some glasses. you got to say he's black? Because because it's important to the story. (laughs) (laughs) And he asked me for change. Which is a very specific request. If you're homeless and you happen to be listening to this podcast, if you ask someone for change, they can say they don't have change. Even if they have dollar bills. It's like, I don't have change. Which I didn't have any cash at all on me. So I said, sorry, man, I don't have any change. He goes, oh, you stupid nigga. 
which Lisa Beth thought was hilarious. Just because that's not something I've heard directed towards me. Yeah, no shit. Not often, anyways. (laughs) You know, occasionally. Those two times that your little brothers, or your uh, bigger brothers, your littlest of the Okay, whatever. Um, I was going to say is that you you are kind of a small-voiced person. Because you're very quiet. Okay. You're you're in my estimation, you're demurish. Demure sounds uh, that again sounds insulting. I am a southern lady. You're a southern lady, but you're but you're 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 well spoken, but you also have this. You don't say a lot. At the same time, you very you pick your words very carefully. Uh, that's yeah. Well, that probably that probably lends itself. That probably is my humor because I've had to watch people talk and then just choose at what point I want to interject. Keep doing the you're fired thing with my hand right now. You so fight it. You fight. So when you interject, you wanted to make sure that it was freaking whip snap. And it's not. It, I don't know if you just heard what I just said, but it was not that awesome. But well, right now. Right. I mean, maybe if we had five family members here that were talking all over each other, you would go oh, like, yeah. ba-boom. And they'd be like, oh, Lisa Beth, you have done it again. Yeah. I I think I probably just sound... Uh, like a grumpy biznatch around my family because <laughs> whenever I did get a word in Edgewise, it was just try to cut someone down a little bit. Yeah, did they did they ever find it funny or did they just found it mean? Uh, it was always funny because they were never intimidated or had their feelings hurt by me, really, because you were the, I was the youngest girl. You were the little girl <laughs> yeah. in your overalls, I would assume. Piece, uh, of, piece of wheat in no. your mouth that you're just chewing on a piece of straw. No. And then every now and then you go, Went down to the farm the other day. <laughs> Still there. <laughs> be like, oh, Lisa Beth, you are a card. And that card is the Joker. God, I'm picturing my tiny self doing something like that, and that's pretty good. Pretty good up here in my head. <laughs> well, what can you think of like a... Because in a sort of a way, okay, here's, here's my acting origin story. All right? Mm-hmm. I want to see if you have a... Wait, under- acting or comedy? Acting. Okay. Because they were the same to me because acting – because comedy is acting. Comedy was I'm now the center of attention and I'm putting on a performance. And you were an actor before you were a comedian. In essence, even though I've always been funny because I knew that was the way that I could get attention is if I was funny Mm -hmm. and silly, I guess, in a sort of a way. But uh, church, of course, doing a a nativity play. You tried to be funny? No, no, no. This oh, is my okay. acting oh, origin sorry, story. Sorry, sorry, sorry. This is how I knew I wanted to be an actor. Um, I was mistakenly cast as Wiseman number three, who has no lines, right? <laughs> like Wiseman number two. And Why are you saying that like he's Jewish, Wiseman? He had no lines. Wiseman? I was Wiseman number three. The Wiseman's are here. Somebody has that joke. Oh, the Wiseman's. The Wiseman's are here. Somebody has that joke. I don't know who it is. Um, I want to say it's like Kendler or somebody. But yeah, it was wise man number three who didn't have any lines. Mm-hmm. Like wise man number two was like, and myrrh. And I stepped up with the myrrh. <laughs> and that's how I knew I wanted to be an actor because I had no lines. And anything anyone said, I always thought, God, I could do that so much better. And I was like, <laughs> one day. That's how I knew. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So is there to you a definitive moment that you can think of where you're like, oh, maybe I'm funny? It doesn't even have to be that young. I just mean any time. It could have been last week. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I don't have a definitive time. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I have an era, and that was probably in my late teens. Mm-hmm. And uh, my brothers had grown out of their teenage years, which mm-hmm. made them much more bearable and much more amenable to me. So it wasn't all about how can we smack down Lisa verbally, you know, constantly. Especially because you could give it back, right? Right. So that was, at that point, when I was probably turning 18 or whatever. So they were 20 and 22-ish. And um, <laughs> my brother and I are a year and a half apart, so that gets it, makes it tricky. Oh. Um, so then at some point, I realized you know, that every once in a while I could say something and they would laugh. When they started laughing at me and not just like rolling their eyes or punching me in the arm or something, mm-hmm. um, I was like, oh, this is fun. And did you apply it at school? And yeah, and yeah, and then I went to college, and then I became my own person. Oh, I thought you were say I went to no. college, and it all fell apart. And it all <laughs> fell apart. Oh, it was no longer funny in psychology classes. No, I yeah. Well, no. what did you find funny? Um, what What are some of the things that you that have always always tickled your fancies? 
Well, did I mention Monty Python already? You did, but what about Monty Python? I mean, people come to Monty Python for completely different... I know, different. I know. I, when, by the time I got into high school and all the... Ryan McMenamin on the ones and twos, coughing, coughing it up for everybody. <laughs> by the time I got into junior high or high school and all the theater nerds were like, oh, Monty Python, and started talking Monty Python. And you're like, oh, I've been a Monty yeah, Python. Yeah, I was like, I'm so over it. I used to dance to the musical numbers with my brother with my baton when I was five, so go fuck yourself. Oh, okay. You said When you said dance, you, you lingered on that D... Just a little bit. I thought you were like, I'm over Monty Python. I used to date Monty. I linger on that and I D. Dumped you know? them for Python. That's just what I do. I you linger li- on that D. You linger on that D. You got to throw some D's on that bitch. Mm. Um, okay, so you were beyond Monty. But what drew you to Monty? Uh, well, my parents. But- no, no, no. I mean, your parents played it. Right. That doesn't mean that you, there's so much that your parents played that you're like, I hate this. Uh, the the ludicrousness of it. Um. <laughs> I don't remember Ludacris being in Monty Python, but um, I might have not been looking at the background enough. Uh, I like surreal, weird comedy. Mm. That doesn't always come across. Well, I think that comes across in my tweets on occasion, but in my tweets. That's at uh, Ladybird J on uh, Twitter. Do I have to say at? Do you just say Ladybird J? People know to put an ampersand. Not an ampersand. It's not even an ampersand. What the hell is that? It's thing? an at. It's you, called an at. People know how to put an at sign in front of a, a Twitter handle. You don't have to say at anymore, right? No. Ladybird J, that's what it is, which is a uh, very Texas and political reference. Those are my initials, LBJ. Yes, I know. Well, no one else does. Actually, so. I think I've said your name, Lisa Beth Johnson, like eight times. Okay. Plus, anyone's listening to it, it'll probably say your name on the feed of well, the Well, I just want it to be known that that is legitimately my name. It's not just me co-opting. <laughs> really? Do people think you've co-opted? Lyndon Bain Johnson oh, okay, right, because right. I'm from Texas. Okay, okay. Yeah, I get that. All right. Okay. All right. I get that. I also watched a lot of comedy growing up I get on that. the Comedy Central channel Like what, what were you drawn to? Um, it's okay. Take your time. Uh, <laughs> I can edit out all of these spaces and emotional sense. I watched it constantly. Uh and I watched, you watched it constantly. That's w- not yeah. really that funny. I mean, it's about a demonic clown. I, but yeah, I thought it was hilarious when the clown came up from the sewers. And there's a bathroom scene with blood. I don't remember. Never seen um, it. Okay, so yeah, there was a there was one special that I remember in particular. It was Rodney Dangerfield's special. Oh, oh, you know it? No, just Rodney Dangerfield. You recognize that name? <laughs> <laughs> I recognize the brand of comedy that Rodney Dangerfield did when I cross-reference what I believe is what you do, it makes sense that you would have a little inspiration from Rodney Dangerfield. Really? Yeah. Because I don't get any respect? Well, that... You don't get any respect from me, personally, but Mm. that's not in a bigger sense. But, uh, I mean, just in the way that you write a joke. Okay. That Rodney Dangerfield, by all intents and purposes, was a joke person, was a joke man. A one-liner, the king, one of the kings of the one-liners. But also, a one-liner king in an era where it was already kind of dead. Mm-hmm. Because the, the Catskill comics, you know, the Henny Youngmans and whatnot were kind of done. And even though Rodney Dangerfield was born out of that, right. he didn't really become popular until like the 70s, 80s. Mm-hmm. When it was already Richard Pryor, George Carlin times. <laughs> That's the best comic in the world. <laughs> Richard Pryor? <laughs> no, the, all of those names together. No, I know. I'm just saying. I'm Richard, just, Richard Pryor and George Carlin. Yeah. We genetically altered them. <laughs> Put them into one person. He's the Megatron of comedians. These are the seven words you can't say on podcasts. <laughs> Love, heart, sincerity, ingenuity. All right. <laughs> I don't want to talk ingenuity? About. That's random. Yeah, I know. I okay. Um, saying words. So a lot of the com- a lot of the comedians that he had on this special were real- fuck I'm talking here. I know I love how annoyed you are. It's kind of amazing. This I revert immediately back to like a 13 year old. Shut up, turn down. I know, and then you turn into like soft spoken Joe Pesci right there. I'm fucking talking here is what you said, <laughs> very demurely. Again, continue. I don't know what's demure about the f word. Anyways. <laughs> So it had Sam Kennison and Jeff Foxworthy yeah, and a lot Bill of Hicks. other people. Uh, I don't think Bill Hicks was on there. Was Dice in it? No. Oh, okay. It was like a showcase for younger comedians. So it was like one of Jeff Foxworthy's first. He's Here's this guy on the scene thing. But is Rodney Dangerfield produced it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and there was a, a large black woman who wore a wig. 
Was it Taya? Was it Thea Vidal? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, she told a real good joke about a doll. And she said that doll is so expensive. I wanted to teach my daughter about her period. Audience went wild. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay. There was a comedian who did this 10 minute seemingly bit about calling on a kid named Archibald Barisol and how the teacher had to break it up phonetically and it was Archibald Bear Asshole. And <laughs> that was uh, that blew your epic mind. Yeah. in our house. Okay. Yeah. Arch eyeballed bear asshole. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so you saw that Kennison and Thea Vidal. Thea Vidal. Who did have a sitcom in the 90s. Called? Thea. Okay. And um, I love how condescending I was right there. <laughs> uh, her name, all sitcoms in the 90s, <laughs> were someone's name. Roseanne, Grace Underbuyer, Home Improvement. Um <laughs> Yeah, the, his name this was being the obvious Seinfeld genius. His name was Tim Holm. All right, we'll edit out that silence. Um, <laughs> I think I really am st- feel strongly we should leave that in. I'm going to edit out a lot of this podcast. This might be a 10 minute episode. Uh, we haven't even gotten to jokes yet. No, actually, we have. You just don't know. Oh shit! Building that foundation. Oh, uh, are we talking about Rodney Dangerfield in stand up comedy? And yes. and Rodney Dangerfield being a joke guy and you talking about some specific jokes that you heard when you were a kid? Yeah. Okay. So I make sure. So um so so much animosity. So smug. Look at you. I know. What can I say? I'm a stupid nigga. <laughs> um according to that homeless dude, uh who's I only put all of my self worth is based on what homeless people think of me. <laughs> only ones with dreadlocks. I think that would be a good way to Oh no, because you know he's really religious. Um anyway, what were we saying? We're talking about jokes. Bill Hicks was on the Rodney Dangerfield special. He was not on this one. That he was I not saw. on that one. I would have, but he was on the that. same one with Andrew Dice Clay. I remember that. This uh, one also did not have Andrew Dice Clay. I, I, had, I never liked Andrew Dice Clay, even as a, even when I was supposed to as a kid. Um, I don't <laughs> because th- kids are supposed to. <laughs> I think the thing about Dice in a sort of a way. What the crap just happened? I right did there? see Pink Cadillac at a movie theater, though. Is it Pink Cadillac or Cadillac? Was him and Ford Fairlane? Ford, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Pink Cadillac. There was a movie called Pink Cadillac. It has, yeah, it has Clint Eastwood in it. And there were two songs: one by Aretha Franklin and one Pink by Natalie and one by Natalie Cole. Those are literally the lyrics. They don't call her the Queen for nothing. <laughs> it's like Aretha Franklin sang in gibberish. It sounds like it's words. Um. So anyway, okay, so you got interested in, in that stuff. So what to you, since our subject is jokes, mm-hmm. what, what, is it, what do you think that means? Why is it an, an interesting subject to you? Why are jokes interesting? Because they confound me. In what way? They're always the one that got away. A joke is always the one that it's got away? Always, yeah, that's my whole, my whole life. I've, because I could never make a joke properly growing up, mm-hmm. never get a word in edgewise. And I still find that to be a case. Like every once in a while, I will write a joke and I think, good. But that's different than saying it. Exactly. Okay. Cause and, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And uh, the saying it part is the part that it gets away. <laughs> oh, is it? Usually, yeah. I mean, how so? Uh, because delivery is a very, very difficult and tricky thing. Very mm. elusive to put your finger on how that works. For you to put your finger on. For me too. I've mastered the shit out of it. You have. You really have nothing else to learn, so I you mean, may as well kill yourself. I'm going to after I leave. Yeah. I've already killed my inner child. Yeah. <laughs> Next is the outer me. What? No. That's weird. It sounds strange. But, okay, so when you, what what are to you? The pieces. This is an interesting sentence. Of a joke. What are to you the pieces? (laughs) What are to you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Parentheses. What are? I would call that an aside. I would. To you. Mark it off with commas. But yeah, they're in commas. Yes, exactly. What are to you (laughs) Mm -hmm. the elements of a joke? The pieces. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because I happened to have looked on WikiHow. What? The Crapple Dabs? How to Tell a Joke. Uh Uh-oh. I feel like I probably should have looked at this, you know, a little bit before this moment. If it's on WikiHow, it must be written by God. I I feel like I should have read something about how to tell a joke 
before now. Okay. Before I started. Let me hear what it says. Okay. How to tell a joke. Yeah. <clears throat> Match your audience with the joke. What? If your joke is about something complicated or is inappropriate for some ages, be careful with your choice. <laughs> Telling the wrong kind of joke could ruin the whole thing. Their example. They have an example for this. Yeah. Telling a six-year-old a joke about physics would probably earn you a blank stare and a, I don't get it, mummy. What the hell? It says mummy, so I figured I needed to do it in a British accent. Who has a joke about physics for adults that people are like, oh my God, that is incredible. Don't I... tell it to a six-year-old, though. Yeah. <laughs> okay, continue. Um, know the anatomy of a joke. All jokes follow a very simple path from beginning to completion. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Is this it? No, I'm dead oh, serious. Okay. I'm reading this. All right. It sounds like they're just a bunch of random unrelated sentences. This is number two. Okay. <laughs> know the anatomy of a joke. Okay. Uh, there is a setup. Think of it as a backstory. Next is the punchline. Mm-hmm. That's the funny part. I'm not kidding. They Word. that. And lastly, there's the payoff. I don't know that that's part of the joke. The payoff is supposed to be the laughter, the reaction. Yeah, I mean, the, the I, I must I, I'll take a stab, but it's like the payoff is the expected reaction from the structure of your joke. It's what you're going for. If people recognize what you're trying to do, that's the payoff, which is usually but laughter. That's, that's outside of your control. So how is that an aspect of the joke? It's not really outside of your control. Other people's reaction. Yes. It is and it isn't because you can you can get better at aiming for because it, for me it, for instance when you're young in stand up it's as once I think Dana Carvey said by all means necessary get a laugh it's like a war with the audience mm-hmm. and you will throw out anything that you can think of just to get a laugh but it's not until a uh, further in your career that you start to wonder well there are different kinds of laughs it's not just about getting a laugh it's about getting a specific kind of laugh in the place that you want for the reason that you want. Mm-hmm. Okay, continue what you were saying. <laughs> oh, someone is so full of himself. No, not necessarily. Um, yeah, I'm kidding. So number three, <laughs> number three is get the setup right. Uh oh. This is the point where the joke falls apart for most people. Don't feel pressured to use the same old setup you may have heard before. No two people talk alike, so tweaking the setup to suit you will make the whole joke more authentic. Hmm, okay. Number four, allow time for tension to build. Mm-hmm. Number five, hit them with a strong punchline. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I was wondering I, but can, I was wondering if it could be a weak punchline, but they're yeah, like, no, 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 no it's got to be strong. Real strong, yeah. Okay. Stronger the better, I think, is what I'm getting here. They are wicking the how out of my mind right now. Um, it says, deliver the punchline with a smile, but don't laugh. That's not necessarily true. Yeah, I feel like these are, rules are real strict. All of these, I mean, rules are meant to be broken, bro. Oh, shit. Is that the end of it? No. Six is gauge the response, which is the payoff, I think. That makes more sense. Gauge the response, but that, that also dictates how you might tell the joke differently next time. That's exactly what they say. Okay. Something that worked Wait. with your buddies in the fishing boat might not work at work. I think I wrote this. <laughs> Weird that I just randomly picked it. Then I just remembered that I totally wikied the how out of this. Uh, so how do you feel about that? Um, As a professional uh, genius level joke writer, um, basically what they say is um, it's also amazingly general. Is mm-hmm. what they're saying. It seems to be written for a guy who wants to tell a joke at work. Yeah, but they're basically saying a lot of the the rules of what. Are have been passed down to be the rules of stand up for, for uh, since there's been stand up, which has only really been a hundred years, a uh, little really, over a hundred years. Maybe that's recorded stand up history. Mm, stand up as we know it, <laughs> we could we could argue this. Back you can't and forth. you can't picture a caveman with the light flickering his shadow back on the cave wall. That's that's telling a story or theater, and there might not necessarily be punchlines in it. But stand-up as we know it, which is um, a reporting in-joke form of our own personal feelings or things that are happening at the time, basically the beginning of it is the minstrel shows. 
Which is why stand-up, you could say, is an American art form like jazz. Yes. Because British had Python. I have a book called Black Like You that's about menstrual shows, and I love it. Oh, my God. What? You are not black like me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, I just like how you just always get so, you're so you're like, I'm Boo! so sad. I get all Kevin Meany. Tapping into that. Cheesecake about to come, and there's a party <laughs> tonight. Now you can't. Edit that out. Now you have to keep mm, that. Cheesecake about to come and there's a party about tonight. to come in. Cheese cheesecake about to come in. About to come Cheesecake about to come in. See, it sounds like you're saying about to come in. Oh good God! I mean, maybe he was saying cheesecake boat's about to come in. Nope, that's not too many syllables. I'll take the boat out. <laughs> cheesecake's about to come in. No, it's about a boat. <laughs> He's talking about being on what a pier. What you just said sounds exactly like what you've been saying the whole no, time. No, it doesn't. Cheesecake's about to come in. <laughs> Cheesecake about to come in. No, because I'm saying about with a Canadian accent if I say a boat. Cheesecake about to come in. All right, I don't even know what I'm saying. I am so tired of the song. I'm noticing. I'm going to throw a shoe at the TV if I have you're, you're tired of the song, but you're, you're laughing your butthole off. Um, that sounds really uncomfortable. No, I can't boop now. I couldn't um, defend myself, so I was taking a sip of water. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those things are really general, is what I'm saying. I mean, like, yeah, a joke has a setup and a punchline, but they don't really define what a setup is, what a punchline is, what a premise is, what a payoff is, all those. People always are pointing out the elements, but in general, there's not really an agreement on anything that has been written on each of those things about the subject, as opposed to it's uh, more of like something that you learn as you go on, Mm -hmm. like a feeling and instinct that you kind of craft. And uh, only really... Really, really experienced comedians talk about it really well. The Bill Cosby's and the Seinfelds and the Chris Rocks of the world. And the Baron Vaughn's. No, I'm just, I would just quote what any of them have to say. Actually, what is his name? Mel Gusso, I think is the name of a writer, journalist, did a good interview with Seinfeld. And he asked him to say, what's the difference between a premise and a, and a setup? Mm-hmm. Right? And he said, a setup is the distance between a premise and a punchline. That a premise is the idea of the joke. Let's have an example. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm doing that right now. Uh, okay. I just thought that it, this was a two-person conversation. I didn't realize. Uh, I mean, redirection is a big another thing people say in writing jokes. You got to redirect. It's a redirection. You know. Um, is that you, like the old switcheroo? You give them one thing and then. Yeah, and you switch it up. It's the switcheroo, which in essence is a joke. You set up an expectation for what people believe you're going to say, mm-hmm. and then you surprise them with a different part of information like the shocker it's like a sh- verbal shocker oh i thought you said chakra at first i'm like mm-hmm. yeah chakra oh no not that one <laughs> okay calm down peaches rock that shocker you know that song yeah okay of course you do you're a woman that's um, weird all right let's continue with what you're saying that's it's it's a generalization that doesn't make any sense do you know that song of course you do you're a woman <laughs> that doesn't make any any sense oh women they always listening to music with their ears Anyway, um, what the hell was I talking about? <sighs> Switcheroos. I totally. What? Yeah, I'm. I, I think I'm. I'm uninterested in what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I'm terribly interested. I want you to power through what I'm doing to you right now. Okay, I once read this book that it broke down joke structure in the most clinical, mathematic way I've ever seen. Uh huh. And I still remember a lot of the elements, the different. Things and he creates a lot of elements and it's called the Step to Step Guide to Writing Stand Up Comedy Boom. by Greg Dean, which is still on my bookshelf. And I remember reading it when I had started comedy and I was like, "What the crap?" It was so clinical that I was like, "I can't, I can't look at this." Mm-hmm. Um, but he says that basically any joke follows this structure, and I defy you. He says, "I defy you to find a joke that does not fit this." And he honestly, he's right. I want to read that book. It's been right. So if you will. He talks about it like, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember all these different terms. I remember the connector was a big term, mm-hmm. right? If you are setting something up, there is going to be a word in your setup, which, is, which basically tells the audience what it is they're supposed to believe. Right. And that is the redirection. That's the failure. You want them to think that you're going towards this direction. And so you structure the sentence or there's a word that they connect to that they will mentally – Finish the story you're starting because of the way that you're saying it. Then suddenly, it's over here. Yeah. You know? Um, uh, can I say real quick? Yeah. Uh, Buddhist monks. Yeah. They have to spend years and years learning how to take apart and put together a uh, paintbrush before 
they're allowed to paint. This is something that Buddhist monks say. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Um, is that you should learn exactly how to take apart and put together a paintbrush for years. Spend time doing that before you even start to try to paint. Well, I mean, that's why a lot of people feel like a stand-up is not really a stand-up until they've been doing it for at least a decade. And then another good thing I was going to say yeah. is uh, I study linguistics in college. Mm-hmm. And so what you're describing to me, this mm-hmm. book, is really interesting to me because it's almost like parsing a sentence. It, it, that's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. That's why that joke I wrote on Twitter the other day. I knew that you were going to get to this. Mm-hmm. Why? Are you you taking did on, it out? You did on Facebook. Uh, it was uh, I, I totes, uh, I sink them. So <laughs> you're I, grounded from totes. If I tweet it, it goes on Facebook. Um, I chose the sentence to look that way because what I believed was the most important piece of the post, most important most important piece of information <laughs> the most important piece I saved to the end mm-hmm. right? right now that's a big thing that a lot of comedians struggle with is which piece of this is the best mm-hmm. I've started thinking about stand up in the opposite because a lot of times people have oh I want to talk about this and they try to figure out a punchline right Everything's a punchline. Anything literally is a punchline. And there was a shoe there is a punchline if you set it up correctly. If you plant the correct kind of information in the audience's head before you say your punchline, they'll be mentally where you need them to be to kind of have that payoff. How difficult would it be for me to ask you to make right now? just in your head to make a joke where and there was a shoe there was a punchline and have it be funny how hard would that be well not probably not that hard it doesn't mean it would be an interesting joke because <laughs> <laughs> i would think about and then there was a shoe there well that phrase implies to me that there's a shoe in a place that there's not supposed to be a shoe right when, and then I start to think well what's the least likely place that you expect to see a shoe anal cavity an anal cavity perfect yeah now, you you don't expect to see uh, uh, an anal cavity in a shoe. Oh, you know what? Proctologist Literally, office. you saying that uh-huh. just made a joke happen to me. Okay, make it. Um, what I instantly thought of is a child. <laughs> I mean, a man talking about himself as a kid and how he was raised uh-huh. and how his parents were rough and how his mother constantly, constantly used to threaten him with, I'm going to break my foot off your ass, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, he's like, that's the most ridiculous. How can you break your foot off? First of all, you're not going to have a foot. My asshole is not <laughs> that valuable for you to be like, you know what? You've been such a bad kid today. I'm just not going to walk regularly for the rest of my life. What do you think about them apples? And, of course, my father was um, scared of my mom, so he was no help. And uh, one time, of course, he was like, you know, you got to listen to your mother. And he pulled down his pants, bent over. <laughs> And there was a shoe there <laughs> because he has had a foot broken off in his ass. And, of course, then you have to ask, well, how does she still have a foot? Yeah. She's yeah. a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> she grows back. She's breaking off her foot in how many asses they grow back. I really should mind my P's and Q's. You know, the pieces of McQueen's ass. No, I got nothing. What are those words that you j- – okay. That was a good job. <laughs> uh, that was – no, it was. That's being put on the spot like that is uh, that is terrifying. Okay, so when I was in college, no, high school. <laughs> okay. There's a book called The Stage and the School. And there was this weird chapter, not a weird chapter, but our teacher taught it to us. And there was this thing that I never forgot, except for I kind of forgot it, which are the seven causes of laughter. Oh, my God. Everything's numbered. Yeah, I know. It's always seven. Seven. Sure it's not a cracked sins. article. No, it wasn't. Seven <laughs> causes. Wacka wacka wink winker. Seven causes of laughter. And I can't remember all of them, but uh, <laughs> but there's certain there's certain causes that you like. I said like what you def- what you find funny um, determines because most comedians stay within a couple of things that they do that becomes part of their voice is that they always get laughter for these specific kinds of reasons, right? And they don't really deviate from that. So if there's seven causes of laughter, any comedian concentrates on maybe three of them. Can you think of a comedian who runs more the gamut? Um, yes, I can. Is it yourself? No. Okay. If you think of like the greatest comedians of all time, 
they've made more uses out of. They've either got a lot of those different laughs. Are you thinking Bill Cosby? Yes. Yeah. Um, Cosby, Pryor, Carlin, Hicks, you know, like people who are considered the greats, Dangerfield, et cetera, et cetera. Does Carlin I – would, I would agree with you on Cosby because I was thinking also like physicality. Well, being an aspect of that, but look, any any comedian is equal parts writer and performer. Some more writers, some mm-hmm. more performers. Historically, black comedians are seen as performers, and white comedians are seen as writers. So when there is a a white comedian that is a really good performer, it's like what? And when there's a black comedian that's a really good writer, they're still seen as a really good performer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because if you look at black Hollywood, there's like five black comics that get all of the writing jobs. And then there's like five new white comics that get writing jobs every month, mm. okay? Because they went to fucking Harvard. But um, like I can think some of beef. I don't got the beef. It's just it's just the expectation, mm. and it's the, and it's also the racial makeup. of No, the I meant Harvard, not with race. I meant with Harvard. Oh, I don't have any beef with Harvard. Uh, uh, I just, was thinking about Jim Carrey when you were saying that. Yeah, uh, him getting the job on li- in Living Color by being. A white performer who a, a, a white comedian who was seen as more a performer, exactly, and then he ends up on a black sketch comedy show, yeah, which catapulted him into Jim Carreyness. Mm-hmm. I would say there's always the argument about whether Richard Pryor or Cosby are the greatest comics of all time. I think like the usually I've had that discussion so many times, but when you talk about the greatest comedians of all time, it's un, it's inevitable that Cosby or Pryor will come up, either. Because someone has decided it is not Pryor and it is Cosby, or it is not Cosby and it is Pryor, or I like them both and I don't want to choose. I, I don't have any preconceived notions or, you know, I'm not trying to trap you into anything here, mm-hmm. but has Pryor, did Pryor ever do a clean show? Yes. On purpose? Yes. To prove that he could? It was before Ish. he was a Richard Pryor, we know. Okay, yeah. Because okay. Richard, so he had to be palatable. For because him. Richard Pryor saw Bill Cosby, right, right. and was like, "Holy shit!" Mm-hmm. And he says in his autobiography, he wanted to be Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. and he did this very fr- family-friendly kind of telling stories version of stand-up that was very palatable. Was but, it funny? Yes, it was. And he was on the he got on Tonight Show and did he he was on TV doing that act, mm-hmm. but it, he never felt it was him, right. Um, also, when you think of how Richard Pryor grew up, his family stories aren't that palatable. Right. Because he grew up in a whorehouse. It's not like dad is great, give us chocolate cake. It's yeah. Like, Richard Pryor. Mom sucks. Grew up this in guy's a trying whorehouse. to rape me. Yeah. Exactly. That's not really. And good. he would talk about, but he would, he always kind of would take part race. And then Bill Cosby, in a way, his comment on race is that his act is race-less. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. I mean, you've been to my place. I have three paintings. On my wall in my living room, my and they're all you. It's really weird. Yeah, that is strange. See, see what the joke is there. I'm talking <laughs> about three comics. I say I have three paintings, or I'm talking about two comics. I say I have three paintings, and then you're expecting. Well, he's going to. They're probably paintings of the people he's talking about, but no, they're all me. Of course, <laughs> they're it's unre- like it's an unrelated thing. I have. Three paintings in my wall. Of course, they're all me. And then that's just the end of the story. You're like, see, so that's point. it. That's my point. Um, of the three, my three biggest comedy inspirations, I guess, which are Pryor, Cosby, and Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they all bring something very different. I think Pryor and Cosby are like the opposite sides of a. Can one I add something coin. real quick just to finish this one little? See what you got to Cosby do. Pryor. Yeah. Uh, I'm <laughs> smashing my fists together. Yeah. I can't think of words. That's also um, the, that's also the gesture you say to your you make to your boyfriend when you're ready. So you start smashing your fists Ready together. Ready for what? Uh-oh, I don't want to know. I'm so confused and naive and innocent. Um, so has Bill Cosby ever said any curse words in his set other than, like, hell? No. I think I've heard hell before. No, and I've heard that he has cussed. People People have been around him offstage and he cussed, and they're like, but, 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 but what? Yeah. You know, but he is a human being. But no, he's never cussed on stage. So he hasn't done, you know, just... You know, devil's advocate. He hasn't done the opposite, which is to be himself, quote unquote. Like, let that all loose. Like, it's it's his persona. Is- well, and that's the other thing is you choose who you're going to be on stage, mm-hmm. and whether or not it is someone who is yourself, you're doing a version of yourself, or if you're doing a character that's very far away from who you are. 
Um, but I per- like uh, I think Lewis Black said that if you think of your personality as slices of pie, like all the different aspects of your personality, your stand-up comedy character is three, two or three of those slices really exaggerated, mm-hmm. right? Because Lewis Black is a really quiet guy off stage, unless of course you get him talking about politics. But he kind of keeps to himself, has a little drink, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, so you can create the stand-up comedy character. Some people, though, because if you think of your lens, if you think of the world through the lens of your comedy character, you can become your comedy character in your life. Because you're constantly taking everything in through that filter, and suddenly you only see things in that way. Do you think that's what Louis C.K. is? In a way, I, but I think that I think it's a little of both, because like, Louis C.K. was a, more of an absurdist as a comedian, his younger Louis C.K., but he kind of rejected that and started to do what he felt was more honest. I have a bad habit of asking a question when I mean it as a statement, just because. <laughs> so do you think that's Louis C.K.? Yeah, that was me, me, me trying to tell you that I thought that that was Louis C.K. Okay. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's just something I'm working on, you know. I got you. Okay, all right, I'm done with that. Um, so what the hell are we talking about? We're talking about uh, comedians Jokes. becoming their lens. That like the lens comes off. And yeah, I mean it's like and jokes. Look, there are comedians who Anthony Jeselnik, for instance, is not who he is on stage, off stage. Right. His character on stage is not who he is off stage. He has become a lot more like the guy on stage because that's how he sees everything now. Yeah. You know, but he's actually a nice guy. You're which, saying he's becoming less of a nice guy? I think that he 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 looks through not not he's becoming less of a nice guy, he's just becoming more judgmental. Cuz his his act is so dark. Mm. You know, and he has worked on those roasts a lot. What about Jeffrey Ross? Do you Jeff Ross is like the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Off stage, but on stage, you know, he kind of has and, – and Jeff Ross, some people think, is a little bit of a throwback kind of comic because he is kind of a classic kind of jokey guy, like a Don Rickles or something like mm-hmm. that or a Buddy Hackett or somebody like that. Buddy Hackett? Yes. <laughs> I was like, Buddy Hackett? Isn't that the musician? No. Buddy Hackett was a comedian. Buddy Holly was a musician. Yeah. Both different. dead. So jokes. Yeah. What about them? I want to bring it back to jokes. Well, that's what we're doing. I mean – I'm saying that, like, if you have a stand-up comedy character, mm-hmm. you write jokes as in, of, as, through the lens of that character. In a sort of a way, what it is you tackle on stage is your thesis of the universe, is that you see the world through these eyes, and everything that you say, every joke that you make, proves that point over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it will evolve as you grow up. You know, as you, as a human being, learn more about yourself or the world around you, things that you thought were true or no longer true, you will report that on stage if that's the kind of comedian that you are. Or you'll just tell jokes. Some people just tell, here's a joke, here's another joke, here's another joke. Which some people think one-liner comedians are hiding. They're hiding behind the structure of a joke. They never have to reveal anything about themselves. I think that's somewhat fair. I'm not saying I think that. I think that some people some people have said that. <laughs> I'm just saying that's what some people say. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's what their their express purpose. That's what their thing is. See, and there's a place for all of it. Some some comedians are mathematicians and they like to surprise you with their word choices or the lengths to which their minds can go to make certain associations and 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 statements. Mm-hmm. And then some people like to Take apart what society is about, you know, like here's the, g- g- the government, man. And then some people are like the me, man. You know, they're, they're very much <laughs> vulnerable or, you know, trying to let you in on how they see the world, which mm-hmm. you could say is something that Lou, uh, Len, uh, Lenny Bruce is the father of the personal truth style of comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of comedians who don't find Lenny Bruce funny and I say that only because I heard a podcast the other day where people were debating if he was funny or not. Lenny Bruce is funny to his time. His comedy is not timeless like Pryor or Cosby. I think Lenny Bruce is very much reacting to what was happening to him at the moment. 
mm-hmm. um, in his personal life. And it, it doesn't, I don't think, translate to now because we're not living at Lenny Bruce's time. Let me ask you this. But the context of Lenny Bruce also, he was doing that style of comedy on the same show with Henny Youngman. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like, again, it was a Catskill, Borscht Belt, one-liner style of comedy. And then Lenny Bruce is nothing like that. Right. And he was doing that, what he did in those venues, which was completely unheard of. Continue. Um, how, what do you think your gamut is, joke-wise, personally? You, a lot of people who are listening to this are familiar with your comedy. I, I, you know, um, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I, I, I accept what I believe are my blind spots. And so I know what it is I think I'm aiming for, but I have been accused of avoiding. I've been accused of hiding behind my intellect and that I don't expose myself mm-hmm. and that I'm not vulnerable enough on stage, which, right now, which of course, in comedy right now is like the holy grail of opening up a, a vein of your heart and exposing oneself, which is and isn't interesting depending on what kind of comedy you like. You know what I'm saying? Because some people want to hear personal truths, their own lives and their own thoughts reflected back to them. And some people like math, mm-hmm. like a piece of music, you know, that it's like you really get like it's the difference between pop music or like indie music. I find that you've been very open on your podcast. Well, that's one of the reasons you, I started this. Thing. I was going to say, is that why? You, it's hard for me to talk it's, about. It's your cutting. Well, it's just it's hard for me to talk about what I actually believe and think. That's yeah, awful. thanks. It's my cutting. This podcast is my cutting. This podcast, this podcast is my emotional wrist, and a conversation with you is like a razor blade to it. Every sentence you say, I like that. <laughs> a conversation with you is like a razor blade to my emotional wrist. I yeah, I'm totally on board with that. Well, that's a good one. That it sounds very mammoth. Um, it's very hard for me to talk about what I believe and what I think. Um, really, without sounding like I'm lecturing. Oh, okay, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like. <laughs> No, I can talk at length about what I think and what I believe. It doesn't mean it's going to be funny. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then I, I get – my personal thing is I get self-conscious and concerned of talking at an audience as opposed to talking to an audience. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If you're talking to them, then you're considering them as we're all humans. We're all in this. But talking at is I know. I'm better. I understand. Here you go, which some comedians are really good at that. They can talk at their audience and their audience loves it because they have that security. That's part of their thing. You know what I mean? They're like, I'm, I understand things better than you do. And then some people are like, I don't get shit. I don't understand anything. Right. You know what I mean? That's what I, and that's one of the, what I love about Pryor, you know, you know, is that he was so vulnerable on stage. Mm-hmm. He was not afraid to make fun of his flaws or the flaws of what he thought was going on in society. Whether it be from the perspective of white people or black people, because he made fun of black people as much as he made fun of white people. It, but it was like a celebration, they could say. It wasn't like, you are all this and I hate you. It was like, I can't believe you guys do this. I can't believe we do this. Enough about that. I've had five children by three women. Let's talk about that shit. <laughs> right? Um, but there's a shitload of things that I'm afraid to talk about on stage because I don't think anyone will understand at all. You don't really do much crowd work. I ha- I can, but I don't. Do it right now. <laughs> Where are you from? Denton, Texas. See, that's exactly how it goes every single time. Everyone says Denton, Texas. <laughs> Everyone. And I'm like, I got nothing. I've never been there. I can't believe you're from a place so boring that there are no jokes about it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Hey, that's crowd work. And you're just like, I'm ashamed all of a sudden. You're, you're turning the, the shade I of your see sweater. The, I see the point of your like pedantic finger-wagging concern now. Oh, thanks. Jesus Christ. Um, I can do crowd work. I never – there are certain comedians of which I'm friends with who I've seen go, yeah, I'm just going to riff. Yeah. And they go on stage and they just riff. And it's good? And it's amazing. Yeah. I can't I, – I probably can, but I've never trusted myself to do that. I can do crowd work if it comes up. It's so weird because I can visualize you doing that. Yeah, I know. I've I've riffed, but it, that's never all. It's not as successful as I want it to be all the time. Mm-hmm. But I've done crowd work. If something happens in the middle of a show, it has to be addressed. If someone says something or does something, someone spills a plate, the lights go out. I just did um, some shows in uh, Arlington, Virginia, 
and there was a gigantic storm, mm-hmm. and the power of the club went out in the middle of my friend Aaron Judge's set. Then it came back up, and then I went on stage. The next night, there was no power at all, and I did my whole set to candlelight with a guy at the back of the room shining a flashlight on me while people sat in sweltering Virginia inside and still had a good time. But I, I addressed it. I can't be like, well, this isn't happening. Did you do your regular set? I did do my regular stuff, but of course I interjected about what was going on and talking mm-hmm. about how people were feeling. That's one of the causes of laughter, recognition. <laughs> one of the seven causes. I never even got to those. Do you do a Cosby face right after you say what each one of them are? That, uh, an impersonation is always a recognition. Right. An impersonation is, is, is someone laughing because they're like, that's exactly what they're like. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I recognize that. Mm-hmm. Recognition, repetition, um, incongruity, mm-hmm. ambiguity, mm-hmm. grotesqueness. Into it. Relief. Totally into it. That's six. Damn it. And there's always that one that I'm like, what the hell is that last one? Recognition, repetition, incongruity, ambiguity, grotesqueness, relief, and something else. You'll think of it. Don't even know. And dick jokes. Oh. <laughs> I thought he said nunchucks. What funnier? What, what's funnier than a uh, dick? Um, do you think? Uh, there I go. There I go. Doing that question thing again. <clears throat> Repeat your question. A comedy book uh, once said. To, once said, "There's no reason for any comedian to ever use a rhetorical question," which I agree with. Anytime it's like, "So how you guys? Uh, anybody like sports?" It's never needed. Right. The whole point is, I'm going to get these people on my side. We're going to relate. I'm going to say I like something. Why don't you just say it? Just say it as, I like sports. Oh, now it's a setup. It's much more assertive. It is. That's a good thing. And when you ask questions, number one, you look unsure. Right. And number two, someone might answer. Yeah, and if everybody answers, that's or the, even one person, even God forbid, or two people. Well, that's my biggest pet peeve is when, an, when a comedian asks an audience a question, and then people answer, and they're like, why don't you guys shut the fuck up? It's like, you just asked the question. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you were going to say, though. Uh, you think. I think. I would like to see you go up on stage with no material and just do something. I think that would be your Batman um, getting, out of the, <laughs> getting out of the prison leap of faith. <laughs> do it without the rope. Make the jump. Yeah, you have to Make have... Make the climb. You have to have fear in order to get out of jail. And I... And I and I'm afraid. I am afraid. I gotta admit that. I've every time I do like a small show, I'm like, I'm just gonna fucking riff. I'm just gonna go on stage and just talk and see what happens. That's the longer form version of comedy where you just talk and you record it, and then it's like throwing clay. That's my always my metaphor. It's like a big lump of clay, and then you pare it and take pieces off. And that's what Louis C.K. is doing actually. Mm-hmm. Is that he's just talking and digging into his brain and it will become something. And that's exactly what he's done. He's removed his safety net of depending on jokes he knows will work. Mm -hmm. He trashes them. He starts completely anew just to see what will happen. I think that's what a lot of people find amazing about him is just he seems to be able to find that one little nugget of or multiple nuggets of uh, the funny thing and yeah. the mundane thing. I mean, I and I will make the case that he, besides that he's one of the best comics that's working right now, I think he's one of the most important comics that's working, working right now because of how he's changing comedy regardless of just his act. Right. The fact that he released his special online right. directly that now five people have done and that he is uh, has a show in which he is writing, starring, directing, and editing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also because of the challenge he's issued to himself, other amazing comedians, equally as amazing as Louis C.K., are putting that challenge to themselves. And she's and everyone's just getting better. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yes. Someone told me a story about a uh, comedian. I think, it, I think it was Chris Rock. I'm not positive. But mm-hmm. uh, it was a friend of a friend who worked at this bar in San Francisco and – This comedian had, let's just say Chris Rock, had multiple days that he was doing this show. Dave Chappelle. Is it Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle's in San Francisco like all the time. Okay, okay. Then it was Dave Chappelle. The other one. (laughs) Well, but also when you tell me what you're going to tell me, I know the difference between 
Dave Chappelle's process and Chris Rock's process. Okay. But continue what you're going to say. Yeah, probably. Yeah, at this point. that It makes more sense. Uh, yeah, but that he did hours and hours every night, and it was just awful for the person who worked there. They were just like, I really like you. I'm a big fan of your comedy, but honestly, you're keeping us all here till 3 a.m., and there's two people in the audience, mm-hmm. and they're making out, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like Chappelle because he, he camps out in San Francisco for months it, at a time. Yeah, yeah. And he has been showing up at shows and doing like four hours sets. I was in San Francisco and had the opportunity to open for him at a comedy club at Cobb's, but it was also a build appearance. He does a lot of unbilled appearances. Mm-hmm. He'll show up, four hour set. Yeah. Um, would that, that would terrify you more than anything, right? If I had to follow it. <laughs> I've yeah. had, I've fo- I have followed Chris Rock. Yeah. And people were just like, the mere fact you exist, you're copying him, hack. <laughs> that was when he was hosting the Oscars, and, I, and he was suddenly started showing up at all these different comedy clubs in New York. And I was like, Chris Rock's here. And the third day, I'm like, God damn it, Chris Rock's here. Because I didn't want to have to go up after him, which I had to, tw- twice. Just um, because you were also a black comedian. Well, because the show is undone when someone who is gigantically famous oh, yeah. shows up. Yeah. There's, no, there's nothing that is going to... Follow the magic of a celebrity, mm-hmm. especially because Chris Rock, as as punny as it sounds, Chris Rock is no joke. You know, he's he he's he's Chris Rock for a reason. So he's going to go up and he's going to do and he's very different when he's working stuff out mm-hmm. than the Chris Rock. We know him from a special when he has his gait and he's and the way that he walks the stage. He sits. He goes over his notes. He's extremely methodical. He meanders and seeing him three nights in a row that one week. The same jokes were so completely different each night. Yeah. Is that he had done so much work just that day recording those sets. And also, I don't know how many sets he did before he showed up to the club Mm -hmm. or to that particular club or afterwards, right? But Chappelle is, I would assume, (laughs) as cheesy as it sounds, trying to get a direct line to his soul (laughs) in a sort of a way. That's why he's just talking. Yeah. And just seeing what happens. My opinion. He's just a radar out like beeping information out into space. Well, it's like you have your waiting Im- for a little alien. You have your, your impulse and your emotion, but then there's so many filters that it goes through before it comes out of your face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some people and uh, you know, and anything every I, my metaphor was always like it's like a pipe, you know, like where it's like a well. Your your impulse, your heart, your feeling is this well of water in here, and you have a pipe that comes out of you. Your life is people coming up to that pipe with hammers and putting dents in it and changing the direction of it. And a lot of the times, by the time it comes out, it's just a spritz. It's like a broken faucet where water's shooting in different directions, and it's kind of brown. Ew. And you can still smell chlorine. And you're like, that's obviously not working. It's brown, and I still smell chlorine, right? Mm-hmm. But you, as your own self, can take your own hammer, right, and rework that pipe to be a straight pipe again. (laughs) 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 Well, I'm glad that we talked about jokes for one minute. No, everything's a joke. Oh. That was was the M. Night Shyamalan twist ending. (laughs) Okay. This whole podcast was a joke. (laughs) It's not actually going up, Lisa Beth. That homeless guy downstairs, I paid him to be there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I had a whole lot of fun. I thought this was great. Oh, okay, good. I'm so glad that you gave me that, that, that last-minute validation before we leave. No, uh, that was for me. No, I needed it. Okay, but that, I meant it for me. And that was Lisa Beth Johnson, um, which is, as I said, Lady Bird J. No at. There is an app. I don't have to say it. Um, interesting conversation that we had, of course. Um, I don't know how much we did cover the subject, but we have decided at some point we are going to do jokes part two. See, that's one of the things that I want to do is repeat subjects with different people. Um, because, you know, sometimes... You, you can't cover love in one podcast if that's the subject. You know, it takes like at least three. After that, and you've said everything you need to say about love. Um, and you will realize after I've talked about love three times that you don't need to listen to songs or read poetry anymore 
because I just told you what it was about. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. I guess I can get rid of all these fucking albums, freaking cat power. Anyway, um, I'll talk to you next time, and uh, keep that shit deep.